Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Dave Goulson. He's a professor of biology at University of Sussex. And we're going to talk about bumblebees that he's working on. So, Dave, thanks for coming. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, tell me about your work with bumblebees. Why do you have an interest in them, first of all? It's hard to know where to start. I've been studying bumblebees, I guess, for more than 25 years now. And I just got into, I've always been interested in insects. I don't know why. One of those strange things, you know, from the age of five or Mm -hmm. six years old. But I didn't get specifically into into bumblebees until, you know, until I was a a grown-up, as it were. Uh, and I was I was a, an academic dabbling in insect research and uh, I, I discovered I, was, I won't go into all the details, but I, I spotted something that bees were doing visiting flowers that I thought was kind of I couldn't explain. And I got intrigued and started studying it. And it to cut a very long story short, I spent about five years find out that they basically they sniff flowers uh, as they approach them. And if they can smell the faint, smelly footprint of a recent bumblebee visitor, they don't bother landing because that previous visitor will have taken the nectar or the pollen. And I thought that was really, really kind of got hooked. Wow. So they can tell if another bumblebee was there within uh, what time period? It's kind of interesting. We don't still don't fully understand all the details, but they must be able to. So, so these smelly footprints wear off over time. Um, and they must be able to kind of judge what strength of smell is. You know, if it's if it's too strong, they'll avoid the flower. If it's a really old footprint that's perhaps, you know, from the day before, then they'll ignore it and visit the flower. So the bees must actually learn what sort of appropriate strength of smell they should avoid. Well, if you position bees near a field of crops, I mean, this, will, this is one way to be more efficient so they don't have to necessarily land on a flower and waste time, but... Even approaching the flowers, how would they know? Do they use any sight cues to tell them to go to areas that are untouched? Not so far as we know, apart from when they're close to a flower, for some types of flower, you can see the pollen. If it's an open flower where there's the anthers that produce the pollen are kind of easily visible. We've also found that bees, if they can see there's, there's not much pollen on the flower, they'll just not bother going. But actually their eyesight is pretty rubbish compared to ours, so they can't kind of make fine judgments based on vision at anything other than really close range so you've observed bees they'll, they'll hover near a flower and then they'll they'll fly away to another one and then hover and then land on the right one yeah I, actually anyone can see this maybe not this time of year but uh, it's, it happens all the time you know they do it in your back garden if you've got a patch of flowers and some bumblebees uh, honeybees do it too just watch them and you'll you'll see that they do it they probably kind of fly up to and reject as many flowers as they land on. Depends a bit on the plant and how many other bees have been around. But it's it's funny. It's it's a, it's actually when you start looking for it, it's really obvious. But nobody paid any attention to why they were doing it, and uh, until we kind of got got uh, drawn in and uh, unravelled what it was all about. Has anyone you know labelled or numbered a field of crops and then observed the pattern in which it gets pollinated? 
Ah, that's an interesting, not really. I mean, we certainly bees start at the end and kind of work their way in. But uh, beyond that, um, I, I don't think anyone's really looked in, in great detail at what kind of strategy bees use to, that they'll always go to the nearest flowers they can. Uh, all else being equal for obvious reasons why why wouldn't they um so they'll they'll if there's a hive say or a bumblebee nest they'll go to the nearest edge if there's a big field of flowers uh, and then obviously subsequent bees might think well i don't want to if i go to the nearest edge then all the flowers will be empty and we know that they for example if they keep encountering empty flowers they'll tend to then fly quite a long way and try somewhere else because they've obviously they realize that the patch they've been in has been depleted by somebody that's what I was wondering, because it would take longer and longer for them to pollinate the rest of the field. Yeah, and they have a kind of flexible kind of learning strategy, you know, that they'll, if they try somewhere and the, a certain proportion of flowers aren't sufficiently rewarding, then they'll skip on to somewhere else. There's, a, there's still a lot of their aspects of their foraging behavior that we don't completely understand there. So what's the focus of your research? What are you looking at? These days, so I started out, as I say, looking at these kind of foraging strategies but eventually I got drawn into becoming more interested in why bees were declining and trying to understand what's driving that. And, and more importantly, what we can do about it to look after them, because, you know, we need bees, as I think pretty much everybody appreciates these days. So that's the, the real focus of my research these days is trying to understand kind of which of the we, we, we're pretty sure there's a whole bunch of reasons why bees are declining, but trying to work out which ones are most important and what we can do to to kind of reduce those pressures on them. Things like habitat loss, loss of flowers, loss uh, exposure to pesticides, problems with diseases and so on. There's a whole kind of um, a mix of stresses that bees have to cope with these days. Well, if you rank them from worst to least, I've heard of varroa mites are the, are the worst, but in your experience, what how do you rank the uh, problems bees encounter? Well, so a beekeeper might say varroa mite, and I should. So the the key thing here is that um, uh, there are lots of different types of bees, and my speciality is bumblebees and other wild bees, particularly bumblebees. They don't get varroa at all, so it's it's of zero significance to wild bees. But varroa is exclusively a disease of honeybees, and they are a serious problem for honeybees, um, particularly because they spread viruses from bee to bee um, just like mosquitoes spread malaria in humans uh, whether they're the worst problem facing honeybees is is you know a subject of a lot of debate but uh, they, they're certainly not an issue for for all the other species of bee so people sometimes i think there's people out there that think there's just one species of bee or or think that honeybees are the only really important bee and that they pollinate all the crops uh, but they don't you know they are the single most important bee species, but there are 20,000 species of bee in the world. Um, wow. Yeah, I know. I, it's an astonishing figure, isn't it? So just in the UK, you know, this, this little cold, wet island, we've got about 260 species of bee. Um, I think the figure for North America is something like 4,000, but don't quote me on that. So yeah, that you know, there's this extraordinary diversity of little insects out there pollinating crops and wildflowers and so on. And uh, Although the honeybee, as I say, tends to be the most common and gets most of the credit, actually, the bulk of pollination is done by wild pollinators of one type or another for, on most crops and most wildflowers. Really? Oh, I thought it was. Um, I thought that people kept millions of honeybee colonies, and that's where most of the pollination happens. Yeah. So, I mean, that's slightly misleading. There are some crops for which honeybees do the bulk of the pollination. So, fa famously, the almond 
crop in Northern California. Beekeepers take hives from all over North America to California to pollinate the almonds. But there are many, many other crops that are better pollinated by other plants. So just to give you a couple of examples, blueberries and tomatoes are much better pollinated by bumblebees than by honeybees. The the flowers need to be vibrated to effectively pollinate them. And honeybees don't know how to do that. The bumblebees are really good at it. Um, so it depends on the on the crop or the flower. Different different flowers have evolved to be pollinated by different insects. Do people keep you know colonies of any other bee besides honey honeybees to pollinate or or no? A little. So um, there are factories that breed bumblebee nests for commercial pollination. Most of them are used in glass houses. So so driver of that is tomatoes that I just mentioned. Um, pretty much every tomato in the world is pollinated by by factory reared bumblebees that are the, the nests are shipped to glass houses where tomatoes are, are grown and uh, put inside and you open the little door and the bees fly out and pollinate the tomatoes uh, in the tropics it's quite common for people to keep uh, there's a group of bees called stingless bees which as the name suggests don't have a sting there's lots of different species of stingless bee uh, and particularly in central and south america it's quite popular people People have been keeping them for thousands of years um, for, for the honey, primarily. They don't produce as much as honeybees by any means, but uh, uh, there are still people who keep stingless bees. So why do they call bumblebees bumblebees? Are they like bumblers or <laughs> It's kind of lost in the mists of time where that name came from. We don't know, as with so many names. Uh, but what is kind of interesting is that they were more commonly called humblebees until about 100 years ago. The first book on bumblebees was was called The Humblebee. Uh, but they've got lots of other names too. Um, it's it's a little known fact that uh, Dumbledore, the, uh, the the wizard from Harry Potter, is actually an, an old English name for a bumblebee. So, uh, really? <laughs> but it kind of conjures up, they are sort of big and bumbling slightly, so it has to work. Yeah, what is the common role of bumblebees? I mean, if you compare them, first of all, to honeybees, what are the differences in them? So bumblebees are better adapted to cold, colder climates. Um, the reason they're big and furry is, is to help them keep warm. So bumblebees tend to be common in quite cool regions of the kind of nor- northern temperate zone. So the, the northern half of North America, Canada, um, northern Europe um, is where they really thrive. And honeybees don't, don't much like cold weather. They're, they originated thousands of years ago in Africa and they tend to prefer warmer weather uh, because they're not big and they don't have a big furry coat like a bumblebee. So in, in cooler parts of the Northern Hemisphere, it, bumblebees are often the commonest bit wild bees um, and the main pollinator of lots of, of wildflowers, um, as well as crops that we grow in those parts of the world. And then as you move further south, you get more honeybees and more other species of, of bee that are, tend to be more common in Mediterranean regions. So that, that's, I guess, the sort of one of the key attributes of, of bumblebees. Um, but there, there are also lots of different species of bumblebee. There are about 250 different types in the world. And they, they vary enormously in the length of their tongues. So some have really long tongues and are more specialised in what flowers they, they visit. So, for example, if you grow um, runner beans in your garden, which I do, um, they're all pollinated by long-tongued uh, bumblebees there's only just uh, two species that are common in the UK that, that have a long enough tongue to reach the nectar because it's hidden at the end of a tube in the in a runner bean flower oh and it, quick question here um like what happens when a bee pollinates do they get 
pollen on their legs and that transfers the pollen while they're drinking the nectar. Like what, what are the activities that happen when a bee comes to a flower? Yeah, so it, it depends a bit on the what the bee's doing. So some flowers visit, bees visit some flowers mainly for nectar and others more for pollen. And so the ones that they visit for nectar, the plant hopes that some pollen will get on the fur of the, the bee accidentally while it's drinking the nectar. And then when it flies to the next flower, a few of those grains of pollen will get left behind and fertilize the flower. Um, if the bee's collecting pollen, it tries to gather as much of the pollen as it can and pack it onto its legs uh, to take back to the, to, the, to the nest to feed to its babies. But um, plant has to hope that it doesn't manage to do that very efficiently and, and you know, and miss a few grains when it's kind of, so it, it, they, they comb the pollen um, using special combs on their legs into these pollen baskets, but they, they're, it's a slightly messy business and the pollen's quite sticky. So some of it gets, gets left on the fur of the bee. And then again, when the bee visits the next flower, um, it, it gets, um, it hopefully pollinates it. But once the pollen's packed into the pollen basket, it's, it's basically useless as far as the plant's concerned and it's uh, destined to be bee food. I don't know if bees knew what pollen was and wanted it. They use it as a food or what, what do they use it as? Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, bees only eat nectar and pollen, more, more or less. Um, it's always dangerous to say anything only does something because someone can always think of an exception. But 99% of the time, bees eat just nectar and pollen. And the, the nectar is just sugar, really. There's not much else in nectar. So it's calories. It's good for burning, for the powering their flight and so on. But the pollen they need for protein, um, and that's mainly for their for their young to grow. So bees gather um, pollen and nectar and may, mainly to take back to their nest. And the, the pollen is mi- typically mixed with a bit of nectar, depends on the species exactly, and fed to the little grubs that live in the nest. And they're, they're completely helpless. Baby bees c- can't look after themselves. They rely exclusively on their parents bringing them, uh, well, often their sisters as well, I should say, because they're social insects, their parents and their sisters bringing them food, uh, which is, is pollen and nectar. So when we when we eat honey, how much pollen is mixed up in it, and I don't know, does it get into the honey? Does it? Uh, I, would, I would guess it would be all over the hive, dust in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so you can actually tell uh, what flowers a bee uh, collected honey from um, by looking down a microscope, and you'll if you do if you do that, you can see pollen grains floating in the honey. Um, which tell you that, you know, they're, they're, they're ones that the bee accidentally got mixed up, like got on its fur or whatever. Um, and each plant species has characteristic shaped pollen under a microscope. Um, so you can identify, you know, that that bee was feeding on clover or whatever it was. Um, and this honey was mainly collected from clover or lime or, you know, it could be any number of other plant species, depending on the time of year and where you are and so on. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So, yeah, but honey, of course, the bees don't collect honey for us. They, they, uh, uh, the reason they collect honey um, is, is their winter food. Um, so honeybees are, un- are really unusual bees in that they have colonies that, that last for years and they have to survive the winter. So they need a larder for the winter. So, so the reason honeybees collect so much honey is so that they can spend the whole winter sitting inside the hive drinking their larder because obviously it's too cold to go out to 
to forage and there wouldn't be many flowers around anyway. Uh, whereas most other bees don't, their nests die at, uh, at the end of the summer or they're solitary insects that don't have a nest at all. So they don't need a, a honey store. So, so the honeybees, particularly unusual and, and uh, uh, aptly named when you think about it. So what's the, um, I'm sure scientists have looked at like the nutritional profile of different honeys. Um, do they vary tremendously? And, and uh, you know, as you near the winter, will bumblebees or will honeybees um, incorporate more pollen into the honey mix? Do they modulate it for their nutrition? No, they store they store pollen separately, uh, and they don't they don't store much pollen because they the pollen is primarily the protein supply for offspring, and they don't rear any offspring in the winter. So the adults just sit there sipping the sweet um, honey to keep themselves alive, but they don't lay any eggs. They don't rear any babies at that time of year, so they don't need much pollen. Actually, I mean, it, nutritionally, um, most honeys are rather similar. They're, they're basically sugar. There are, there are lots of tiny traces of, of, of chemicals that give them the distinctive taste and, and, and smell. But actually, in, you know, in terms of... Um, vitamins and minerals and so on honey is uh doesn't have too much in it uh it's basically nice a, a very uh sweet and pleasantly scented source of sugar for us and, and for the bees well what happens when uh spring comes do the bees first seek pollen and then they seek honey or or no like how does the mix i would think the mix changes over the year yeah so so the big uh in in the in honeybees the big period of rearing babies is is early spring to sort of mid late spring, um, so the colony can tend, will have dwindled through the autumn and winter, uh, as you know, because they haven't been producing any um, any more offspring, and some of them will have died. Uh, so the colony is at its kind of lowest point in, say, about March. Depends exactly where you are in the world, and so they they're desperate to to grow the colony, and ideally. Um, to swarm so the way honeybee colonies reproduce as it were is by splitting so when the colony gets really big which if if everything's gone well happens by about may or june then then the colony essentially splits in half it produces a new queen and the old queen and a few thousand workers will fly off to find a new place to to nest so so they uh, and they the nests if all is well, grow really fast in the spring. And the, the queen, who's the only one who lays eggs, can, can lay a couple of thousand eggs a day. So that's, that's essentially her only job, is to is sit there and churn out eggs as fast as she can. If only I had a chicken that laid that many eggs. But um, um, oh, yeah, yeah so it's, it's a pretty weird life cycle they have altogether. In regards to bumblebees, in what ways are they also different from honeybees? What else is different about them? They're bigger, fatter? Yeah, well, so, so they their longer, life cycle... Yeah, the life cycle is quite different. So the bumblebees' nests only live for about four months. So as I mentioned, honeybee, uh, a honeybee nest or hive can last almost indefinitely for years and years and years. Bumblebee nests are started by a single queen on her own in the spring. Um, she's been asleep over the autumn and winter, and, and she'll come out in February, March. And she has to build a nest from scratch. So they typically they nest underground. Um, and she has to collect pollen, find a place to nest, incubate her brood and do that all single handedly until and the, then the first batch that she rears are all daughters, they're workers and they then kind of help. And the nest grows through the spring 
Um, and if all has gone well, it might get to have uh, maybe three or four hundred workers helping the queen by summer, which huh. is in contrast to a, a honeybee colony can have 50,000 workers. So they're, you know, much bigger scale. Um, and then in, in the bumblebees, the, the, once it gets to summer, the nest switches from producing workers to producing new queens and males, which just fly off from the nest and mate. And then those young queens, as soon as they've mated, uh, burrow into the ground, which can be as early as July and sleep right through to the following spring. And the old nest just dies off. Um, so the nest itself only survives from about March when it started by the queen. Maybe August if it's lucky um, in the summer, and that's then. And then everything the workers eventually die. The old queen dies off, and the nest just falls apart. Um, that's weird. Uh, Does yeah, he? Well, the existing seems... queen doesn't uh, burrow into the ground. She dies. Yeah, yeah. They have. It's just an annual life cycle. But actually, that's that's very common in the insect world. Most, the the honeybee is really the weird one. It's just we're more familiar with it. Um, but most insects are, are really quite short-lived creatures. Many of them don't even live a year. So yeah, I, you know, she has a she has a hopefully a good run of it for a for a year, and raises a family, and then you know naturally meets her end. Huh. Yeah, I guess the new queens uh, hibernate for a very long time, half the year at least, right? More. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it seems like a really odd. Uh, life cycle you know you wonder why they don't carry on for a bit longer because they're they're often going into hibernation in the middle of summer basically when there are still lots of flowers around uh, but maybe it's it's safer you know you're not going to get eaten by a predator bird or a spider or something if you're if you're tucked away underground to sleep so the queen can store enough nutrients in her body to hibernate for seven eight months or so yeah months. so queen bumblebees are, are, are much bigger as you might guess, than, uh, than the workers. And they're full of fat when they go into hibernation. Um, they, they basically eat as much of the food stores from their, their parental nest um, as they can to fatten up before they fly off into the world and mate and, and then go to sleep for seven months or whatever it is. But they're mating and then they're storing sperm just like uh, honeybees do, just for a shorter period of time. Yeah, although again, there's another interesting difference um, between honeybees and bumblebees. So uh, a honeybee queen will often mate with 10 or 20 males all in one go, one after another. In a, she goes on her nuptial flight from, from the nest and she releases a pheromone to attract males. And then she, she mates midair with a succession of males and stores all that sperm for the whole of her life. And, and that might be four or five years. But the bumblebees, in, in most bumblebee species, they mate with just one male, and that's it. And as, as soon as they've mated with that male and stored his sperm, then off they go to hibernate. Oh, okay. So it's, uh, I didn't realize that. Interesting. How do they choose the male? <laughs> well, that's a good question. I, um, we don't really know um, what they look for in a, in a partner. What is it? It's slightly kind of interesting is... There are lots more males than than young queens, um, and the male bumblebee, and for that matter, honeybee, their only job is mating. They don't they don't collect food for the nest. They don't defend the nest. You know, they have one purpose in life, and that's to to find a mate and uh, and mate. Um, but in, in bumblebees, there are roughly seven times as many males as there are females and uh, new queens. 
And given that the new queen's only mate with one of them, that means that six out of seven male bumblebees never get to mate with anybody, which is kind of tragic given that that's their only purpose in life. But exactly, you know, how they win her over, what they do. Uh, they do have some interesting behaviours to attract females. They produce pheromones, as is common in the insect world. But they also um, have this strange uh, behaviour where male bumblebees in the morning, a whole group of males will lay a scent trail in a, in a, in a circle around a field or a the edge of a forest or whatever and then they fly round and round and round this the whole gang of males in like a, in a sort of succession like a chain of males flying around uh, you, Charles Darwin had his kids help him watch this in his garden in Kent we think that females are attracted to this kind of succession of males flying past with their, and maybe this gives the females a chance to eye them up and decide which ones they like the look of or something uh, it's it's slightly mysterious because because although it's easy to see the males doing this, you hardly ever see a, f- a queen turn up. Um, but they must be doing it to attract females. We can't think what else they're doing. Do the males that mate live longer or less long than the ones that don't? No, it doesn't seem to make any difference. Uh, they only live for two or three weeks anyway. The male life expectancy is pretty short and mating doesn't seem to, to affect that. So what other uh, aspects of the bumblebees have you studied? Oh, we, all sorts. Homing behaviour. I, I spent um, many a happy hour <laughs> driving bumblebees around in my car, releasing them at different distances from their uh, their nest to see how far they could um, navigate back from. Uh, we were we were trying to work out how far they naturally fly from their nests to find food and what's the kind of limit. Uh, I think if I remember correctly, the, the the record I had was a bee that found its way back from about six miles from its uh, uh, from its nest, uh, which is pretty impressive for a little creature when you think about it. Um, What's typical? How far do they range? Well, we we think they probably more typically stay within a mile or so of of their nest if they can, if they can find flowers. But but we know that they they can regularly go perhaps two miles to find food it's a little bit less than honeybees honeybees seem to be the real masters at long distance foraging and famously of course the honeybees can recruit their nest mates if they find a really good resource a long way from the hive um, doing the the waggle dance which is something the bumblebees don't do so so the waggle dance is if essentially what happens is a uh, if a female a worker bee honeybee has found a really big say a field full of flowers or a forest full of flowers or whatever it might be um she comes back and she does this dance which has to it conveys two critical things um that the direction and the distance to the to the patch of flowers and she it's hard to explain without drawing a diagram but essentially she does this uh buzzes a lot she runs along buzzing um and the comb is vertical inside hank does this on inside the nest and if she buzzes in a line that's, say, 10 degrees left of vertical, that tells her nestmates that they should head from the nest 10 degrees left of the sun. Uh, and the length of, the, of the, this waggle dance that she does indicates how far it is to this food supply. So it's, it's an amazing you know, thing for these little insects. And they do it all in pitch darkness, which is all the more fascinating. But it, it works remarkably well. Uh, and so if she finds a good good patch of food within half an hour she can recruit hundreds or thousands of of workers to come and help her gather the the food you talked about the comb being vertical is it built bottom to top and like 
in columns or how is a comb uh, filled or built? Oh, t- typically it hangs. So in, in a, this, is, this is honeybee combs specifically. Naturally nest inside sort of a cave or a hollow tree or, or obviously these days they tend to be in a hive. But the comb hangs from the, from the top. So in the wild, they start off at the highest point in the cave and they build these sheets of wax that hang down um, vertically from, from the roof. And then they'll, they'll build parallel sheets, uh, maybe about an inch apart, roughly, uh, until they've filled the whole cavity with, uh, with these wax sheets. that they. And of course, they're made from these beautiful hexagonal little chambers, which is the most efficient uh, shape for packing in you know, uh, maximum, uh, they use them for food storage and for rearing their offspring in the little hexagonal cells. How perfect are the dimensions of the hexagonal cells? Are they like, totally well, perfect? Were they stacked neatly? The, to the to the human eye, I mean, they do, they they all look exactly the same size. Um, I, I'm sure there is a tiny bit of variation. I've never tried measuring them with a, you know, very precise uh, set of calipers or whatever. Uh, and, and interestingly, bumblebee nests um, are much messier than honeybees, uh, perhaps because they're, they're honey, a bumblebee nest is a, a short-term structure. They're only, they're, they know it's going to be gone in four months, so they don't bother um, building anything particularly um, clever. Bumblebee nests, are kind of, they're still made from wax, but they don't have the hexagonal cells. They just make little round pots to put the honey in and to rear their babies in. And the whole thing's rather kind of higgledy-piggledy mixed up. It looks like it, you know, there was no plan compared to the honeybee hive, which is, you know, beautifully regular. Oh, well, okay. So in the honeybee hive, they have certain areas for certain activities and they're segmented? Uh, yeah. So so some combs the queen will lay eggs in, some are used for honey storage uh, and so on. They they have a they have it isn't just kind of a random mess. Um, and it's one of the one of the extraordinary things about social insects is how they manage to to communicate and coordinate their activities. You know, I mentioned how there can be tens of thousands of workers in a in a honeybee hive, or and there can be millions of ants in an ant nest. Um, ants are quite closely related to honeybees, and somehow. I was going to say agree. I mean, they don't, it's not like they sit down and have a meeting and decide who's going to do what or how they're going to build anything. But, but nonetheless, somehow organization emerges from the way these animals manage to communicate with one another. And it's, uh, it's something that's fascinated scientists for a very long time. And, and again, we don't completely understand it, but uh, um, it, it, it clearly works. So when you look at a bumblebee hive, will you be able to see just I don't know, uh, spotty structure, or is it just literally stuffs all over the place? I mean, I would think the comb part portion would be relegated to one area of a hive. So, the in in a bumblebee nest, it's it's basically looks it's sort of sort of a loose cluster of little pots of wax. Uh, some of them with uh, with nectar in, some of them with pollen in, and then that scattered around, there'll be little clusters of brood laid from the the. The queen lays little batches of eggs in bumblebees, typically 16 at a time. Uh, and so there'll be different age clusters dotted around inside the nest. And then they usually make a kind of wax cap over the top to help to keep it warm, as, as, a, as like a sort of dome over the top of everything. And it, as I say, it's, it's unrecognisable, really, as a, honey, as a bee nest. If people are familiar with seeing, uh, you know, the hexagonal design of honeybee comb, 
uh, they, if they looked at a bumblebee nest, they would they would think, well, this is completely different. There's no similarity at all, really, apart from it's made from wax. Are you able to tag bees? I've heard that um, honeybees can be tagged with like a, I don't know, some type type of um, either fluorescent or heat sensitive paper where they can be tracked where they're going. Like, can you do that with bumblebees? Yeah, it's it's um, people have tried all sorts of, of different ways of doing this. Um, the, the one of the more successful is the really high tech thing where which works with both honeybees and bumblebees, which is you, you stick a little tiny aerial on the back of the bee and it's a system called harmonic radar. You need a big kind of dish projecting a, a radar signal, which essentially bounces back off the little aerial attached to the bee. And then you can you can map, you can basically see exactly where they in the landscape they they go. Um, but that's unfortunately those setups cost millions of dollars. So not meant there's only I think two in the in the UK, and I'm not sure there's any in the United States. So people do more low tech things. Um, so for example, you can get little kind of um, t- electronic tags that you stick on the bee, which identified every time it leaves the hive and comes back. So you have a little reader attached to the entrance to the hive, so you can see when an individual bee left and, and and how long it was out foraging and when it came back and so on, but you don't know where it went. People have tried making the traditional radio tracking collars, the sorts of things that people put on birds or whales or whatever. Uh, they've tried making them small enough to put on bees, but the technology isn't quite there yet. The, the, essentially, the power supply is the issue that uh, uh, nobody's yet made a, a battery that's light enough that a bee can actually carry it without it completely affecting their behavior. So so I, I'm sure that will come as, as obviously electronics advance prodigiously all the time. It's probably only a matter of time before we have uh, relatively cheap bee tracking technology. Well, since bumblebees are bigger and heavier, maybe they'll be the first ones to get it. Yeah, they can carry much more than honeybees. So so they, they would certainly be... Uh, viable before honeybees are but uh, as yet the, the lightest radio tag is about the weight of a queen bumblebee so so she, uh, which she can almost fly with but she won't get very far and uh, is probably going to die quite quickly so that's not really much point in uh, in using that at the moment well what's been observed about the comings and goings in a hive Are there are times where certain bees come in and out of the hive or is it random what, what was noticed <laughs> It's very weather dependent, obviously. Uh, you know, if it's cold and wet, they stay in, particularly honeybees. Uh, bumblebees are a bit hardier and, and can go out when it's windy and a bit a bit wet. They're busy from, you know, this dawn till dusk in good weather. And, and in midsummer, that's, you know, they can work for 20 hours a day. And some individuals if, will just work nonstop. You know, they fly off. It typically takes them about half an hour to get a full load of nectar and pollen and they can carry just about their own body weight in nectar and pollen when they're fully loaded they have the pollen on the legs and they have a honey stomach in their abdomen which is just a, a hollow sac that they stuff full of um, nectar um, so they and, and the, when they come back it takes them about five minutes to unload and then they're straight off again you know there's a reason why people say busy as a bee Imagine if with a big nest with uh, thousands of workers all doing that, then um, you know that brings in a lot of a lot of uh, food, and that's how a honeybee hive can can store. You know, if if, if all goes well, maybe twenty kilos of of honey by the end of the summer, and and raise tens of thousands of babies as well. 
Uh, obviously, that all requires lots of uh, lots of lovely pollen and nectar. Do bumblebees, um, you know, when they go into hibernation, do they abandon any honey in the hive, or is it all gone by that time? Yeah, so bumblebees, because they the nests don't survive the winter, they don't stockpile honey like honeybees do. Um, bumblebees make just a few teaspoons of honey, um, which is just enough essentially to tide them over if the weather turns really awful and they can't get out and forage for, say, a week or something. So they just have a little bit as a kind of short-term emergency supply, but they don't bother making pounds and pounds of it because uh, they don't need it. Um, so typically by the time the nest dies out, it's got very little honey in it. And if there is any, usually it'll attract ants and wasps that'll come and uh, scuff it down very quickly. Have you had honey, uh, bumblebee honey? Yeah, it's nice. It, I, I mean, to be honest, I, it tastes very similar to uh, honeybee honey. Uh, it depends a bit what flowers they've been visiting, but uh, you wouldn't know the difference uh, if I gave you some. Hmm, interesting. So what we, we spoke about this in the, in the very beginning. What, uh, sorry, honeybees but not bumble, but what, what bothers bumblebees most? Well, it, probably the, the habitat loss is, is probably one of the biggest drivers of bumblebee declines particularly loss of kind of flowery uh, habitats like, uh, well, in Europe, we used to have hay meadows, huge areas of hay meadows, which are full of flowers. And we kind of got rid of virtually all of them in the 20th century. And I guess the nearest habitat in North America would be the the prairies that uh, obviously, again, mostly been plowed up. But then on top of habitat loss, um, there are uh, issues with pesticides which is a big controversy over how big a deal that is some people claim it's it's not such a big deal i inclined to believe it does have major impacts then although they don't suffer from varroa mites they bumblebees seem to certainly suffer from a whole range of other parasites and diseases and there's there's a really interesting story unfolding a really sad story actually um in south america at the moment so in the in the southern half of South America, it, there lives the, the world's biggest bumblebee. It uh, doesn't really have a, an English name, but its Latin name is Bombus dalbomii. It's an enormous ginger bee. It's often kind of likened to a flying mouse. Um, extraordinary thing. But um, rather foolishly, they introduced European bumblebees, a, a species we call the buff-tail bumblebee, uh, these factory-reared bees we were talking about earlier, they, they introduced them to Chile in, in 1998. Uh, and unfortunately, they also introduced um, European diseases, uh, bumblebee diseases, to South America. And there's this horrible parallel with what happened with the um, people 500 years ago who were terribly affected when the first Europeans arrived in the Americas by diseases that they had no resistance to. And now the same thing is happening to Bombus dalbomii in Chile and uh, Argentina. It's essentially gone from being a very common bee to being close to extinction um, because it's being, it's being wiped out by a plague of, of disease spread by these European bumblebees, which are spreading across South America. So that's one of the most dramatic examples of the impact that, that non-native diseases can have and and obviously there's a very strong argument for being much more careful when we move bees around the world and we should make sure that they're completely clean and healthy well what happens with the uh, with honeybees that are kept by beekeepers versus wild honeybees do they mate and if so does that cause any issues and does that happen 
Uh, they do, they will mate, and and feral honeybee colonies are not as common as they used to be in most parts of the world because they, without the help of a beekeeper, they are often wiped out by diseases and uh, the spread by the varroa mite. So they they're not they're not terribly common, but they're they're exactly the same species as the the, the bees in hives, genetically essentially identical or near as damn it. So. Um, it isn't shouldn't be a great concern for beekeepers if there's genetic exchange mating between uh, the feral bees and their domesticated honeybees. So, what's going to be the uh, the future of your research? Are you still looking into the various again uh, causes of bumblebee decline, or like what's your focus going to be over the next few years here? Well, so the, probably I'll have a number of different foci, as I always seem to have. I'm not very good at focusing on one thing. But one area we're doing quite a lot of work at the moment is, is essentially citizen science, enlisting the help of um, people, the public, to, to help us gather data, uh, particularly on which things uh, work best in urban areas to encourage populations of bees in our, in our gardens, in our towns, which I think is there's a real kind of interest in that at the moment. You know, the public, they like bees, they, they love bumblebees. And lots of people want to work out how they can attract more um, to their gardens. And so we're enlisting people's help in gathering data on what kind of flowers are most attractive, uh, on making nest sites for bumblebees and testing out different designs and, uh, and all sorts of kind of things like that, which is, which is both an interesting way of collecting more data than we could gather on our own. But also a really nice way of engaging with people, you know, of um, kind of reconnecting people and, and encouraging them to learn about these creatures and and learn to love them and look after them. Well, very very good. Where's the best place for people to find out more about your research and get in contact? Uh, they can have a look at the if they Google the Buzz Club, they'll find it pretty quickly. I can't remember the web address, but it's very simple. Um, Buzz Club is what you need. Or look at my website, which is just on the University of Sussex, which connects to the Buzz Club as well. Oh, Buzz Club, that's a cool name. Yeah. Very cool. <laughs> yeah, we like it. Well, Dave, thanks for coming on the podcast. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.